Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Taylor McFerrin just recently started singing. He did it on his new album, Love's Last Chance. Before that, he was a composer, a keyboard player, a DJ, a producer, and before that, a world-class beatboxer. Like, an, like very, very good at beatboxing. As an instrumentalist, McFerrin is brilliant. He creates lush, swirling songs. He blends jazz, electronic music, and hip-hop in the same way that, say, Flying Lotus might. In fact, his first album, Early Riser, was put out on Flying Lotus's label, Brain Feeder. Early Riser came out in 2014, a fascinating record made even more interesting because of the other musicians who contributed. Robert Glasper, Thundercat, Emily King, and Bobby McFerrin, Taylor McFerrin's dad. And yes, that Bobby McFerrin. It's a little surprising, right? Here's Bobby McFerrin, one of the most talented vocalists ever, and his son Taylor, a gifted musician who waited 15, 20 years into his career to start singing. But guess what? Taylor is also great at singing. Take a listen to a track off of Love's Last Chance. This song is called All I See Is You. You got me looking in your eyes Taylor McFerrin, welcome to Bullseye. It's so nice to have you on the show. Yeah, man. This is awesome. So I'm going to get this out of the way. Before we went on the air, you mentioned you grew up in San Francisco. I also grew up in San Francisco, and I think we went to preschool together. Really? Yeah, I've been saving it for the air. It's hard. (laughs) Yes. I've been saving it for the air. You go to preschool in Glen Park at Kids Play? Dude, yeah, when I was like four years old. There you go. So, so did I. There wow. we go. We went to preschool together, folks. That's like real preschool. I thought you were going to say the San Francisco school, which was like ten, first grade in a <laughs> no. like for real preschool. I'm talking about for real preschool in a garage in Glen Park. Yeah. In a nice woman's house. And my friend Evan's mom built a place structure in the backyard. I have a picture of me and one of my best friends, Jonah Copy, from that era. I went to high school with Jonah Copy. See? All right. This is a whole <laughs> different vibe to this conversation, though. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. I remember nap time. <laughs> That's like one of my earliest memories is nap time at that uh, preschool. Wow. So you grew up in San Francisco and I was thinking about like, I think as a kid, I had a vague idea that your dad was a musician, but mm-hmm. you know, I don't think that was like so unusual among people I knew. And then your dad went from a successful working musician to uh, like an international celebrity Mm -hmm. a few years later. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what was that like for you as a kid 
when your dad, who uh, your dad Bobby McFerrin, who had been, you know, had several records and had been a pretty successful working musician, accidentally had, or maybe intentionally, had an international mega hit. It's funny because I've learned so much more about that era of his life and my family's life as I got older and how different it was. For me, it was awesome. I mean, I know for him he hated that song, and I think the story with that song was it's a really great song. <laughs> it is. Well, <laughs> I was I was I heard it the other day, and I thought I also heard uh, the song Mbop by Hanson. Yeah. And the reaction I had to both of them was like, you know what? That was a huge hit song. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with with just a carefree song that's not meant to be like super deep. One thing about my dad is he made it his own lane as like a straight up solo act where he'd go on stage, just him and a mic, and he had this incredible ability to kind of like do the bass line, supporting parts, and the lead, and like chain, you know, switch between them so quick that it really felt like a full song. But as a solo artist, he had to be really diverse in how he entertain people for 90 minutes so he would do these super heavy jazz songs he would do like a f improv opera <laughs> you know where he'd like sing the man and female part he'd do crowd interaction stuff and a lot of his stuff was really lighthearted. and the don't worry be happy song i guess was just kind of one of the funny moments of his show because the other thing is he also hated that people thought he was jamaican for years because he's like singing in a jamaican accent and we're really in his show. He he like he does like the whole entire Wizard of Oz in like a condensed twenty minute version. Like his his performance style is really meant to be diverse and meant to be just like kind of joyful. And I think the way that song happened was there was, that record was already cut, but they had like ten more minutes of studio time. And he was like, you know, whatever. Let me just do that one thing I've been doing for fun. And then, you know, that's how it goes. That's like the ultimate lesson in the industry is like the thing you take the least seriously is probably going to be like your most successful thing. <laughs> but he really, I know he really battled with the success of that song because he never toured that album. He like was getting off the success and he realized he was going to like go crazy and turn into like a horrible human being if he like toured it and like maybe even took on the persona of like the voice he did in the song. Like there's so many ways he could have gone. So he decided not to even tour that record. When he went back, he just went back to his regular show of doing whatever he wanted. And I never saw him perform it after it came out until like a few years ago, he like didn't even perform it. So it's, it's a trip for him. It's, it's like super heavy, but for me as a kid, it was awesome. <laughs> was it cool? Cause you were like, that's my dad on the radio. Nothing seems strange to you as a kid. Everything is just happening. You're like, this is supposed to, this is what my life is. But the stuff that I did notice was like, all of a sudden we got like a, a real TV, you know? And then like, <laughs> like all of a sudden we got like a car, you know, it was all this stuff that as a kid would get you super hype. And, you know, we started being able to go on vacations and I was just old enough where stuff like that was amazing. And also just crazy stuff. Like he started working with Pixar when they first started off. We, I got to go see, like, the first Pixar short films. Um, and, like, he was just working with really cool people. Uh, so I, it was, it was like, the perfect thing to happen as a kid. Did you have music education as a kid? Did you, you know, were you playing instruments at home? Was your, was your dad, uh, what's the movie where J.K. Simmons is being mean to the oh, yeah. drummer? <laughs> <laughs> it was so not like that. Um, I had no... 
I took piano lessons in grade school, but I don't. I wasn't really into music. I, w- I didn't think I was going to be a musician until high school. Or I didn't fall. I fell in love with music in eighth grade. Specifically, I had an hour-long bus ride to school, which was crazy because school started at 7:15, and I lived in Minnesota at the time. I was the first kid on the, the first kid picked up on my bus route, so I was the earliest in the morning. And thinking back, there was like these Minnesota winters where I was like walking through like two feet of snow to my bus stop that was like ten blocks away, and then I'd be on an hour-long bus ride to school. But it it introduced me to albums. Because it was like the perfect length to listen to a CD. That's when like my mind got blown. Like I got into Stevie Wonder at that time, and I would like listen to full albums and be like, "Whoa!" It like really moved me in a in a special way. But then I, you know, I grew up just on radio stuff. Then I was like, I wanted to get into hip hop, like making beats. I was like the beatboxer kid in the cipher with my friends, and I was. <laughs> I realize it's always the beatboxer in the group of friends that turns into the producer. <laughs> so I, in like junior year in high school, I started getting little samplers or beat machines or whatever and started making tracks. But yeah, I had no formal training and I still kind of suck at a lot of like theory and, and playing, but uh, I figure out how to make it work somehow. When you were beatboxing primarily. And I mean, I remember in my young 20s hearing of hearing about your reputation as a as a beatboxer. Mm-hmm. Were you were you self-conscious or self-aware about the idea that you were carrying on a family legacy? Your father's gift as a whatever the vocal equivalent of a multi-instrumentalist yeah. is. It's funny, I totally didn't <laughs> I really didn't. And now when I think back, I'm like that's that's kind of whack, actually. <laughs> um, I've always been, thought of myself as a producer. I always made beats first. As boy, like spent the most time doing. I don't think I ever practiced beatboxing. Kind of, I kind of was known that I could beatbox in high school, but it wasn't like I didn't think I was gonna make a career out of it or anything. But um, I once I started doing live shows, my first band I was in, I realized beatboxing was the only thing I could like hang with real musicians doing. So it turned into kind of like my ability to get on stage. And then I there was a period in New York in like the early 2000s when I did get, I think, pretty good in terms of the ratio of beatboxers in the world. I felt like I had my own little style. There was like these beatbox competitions and like I'd be on some shows and stuff. And that was a lot of fun. I guess I took it a little bit serious at that point. But I, I was only ever really good doing it in a completely freestyle format with like a singer and a keyboard player and kind of like just being a support when it got to like the the real when beatboxing really blew up and it turned into competitions and how many songs can you do and all these sounds and all this stuff i never practiced any of that type of stuff so i never for some i never really thought of myself as a beatboxer at all it's just something that i did but then it's been in my bio and it's been like such a forward part of how i've been presented over the years i guess if i really think about it i don't like that that much, but it also kind of doesn't bother me. It's interesting that you said that beatboxing was the first thing that you could do on stage and hang with quote-unquote real musicians. Yeah. Because that feels like a tension through your whole career, that you're a very gifted musician. I'm going to stipulate that. But if your buddy, the other guy in your band, 
when he's not touring with you is touring with Chick Corea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's a true. The, like the level of there's there's not a lot of room for punk rock. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> it's crazy. I think about that all the time. I'm always telling Marcus Gilmore, who you're referencing, yeah. like, towards Chick. I'm like, how do you come off tour with Chick and play with me, man? <laughs> but it's it's I've, I'm much more at peace with it than. Um, like at this point in my life, I'm like, I'm around so many crazy talented musicians that don't necessarily like their productions when they play me like their beats, you know, or everyone has kind of their special skill. And being a producer first is kind of finding this weird middle ground where it's like what I'm good at is the finished products, not like the individual elements that go into it. I don't play keys at a super high level. I don't play drums at a super high level. My gift is like putting things together and just like working with Sonics in general. So it's like I have to keep reminding myself that that's what I'm good at sometimes when I'm around people that I just can just immediately do something that's super impressive that you can tell is like one of the best in the world. It's a strange thing because it's like some part of your ego wants to be like, I want to be one of the best in the world, but it's like show me. And it's hard to like show someone sometimes when you are a producer. But then at the same time if you have a track that you put on in a club or that just a song you make that travels around the world and it's moving people it's kind of like they're having that experience i had on the bus as a kid where like just everything's hitting you it's giving you some emotions you can like zone out and have all these thoughts so it's a strange it's a strange thing to be the focus of when you also want to be a performer a little bit but i don't know it is what it is i mean i feel like that is also one of the central tensions between hip hop and jazz mm-hmm. is that you know in jazz chops are a big deal yeah they're not the only deal but they're a really big deal yeah hip hop aesthetics are much more about i mean broadly pop aesthetics like how much emotion does it give you in the here and now yeah does it make you dance but also the refinement of sound i remember trying to explain to you know my dad or something like that as a as a 20 year old why if Questlove could play the drums for a hip hop song why all hip hop acts don't just have drummers and it's like well Questlove is the only drummer who is both great at drumming and so completely obsessive about like placing microphones yeah. in exactly the sound that he generates that he can generate a perfect snare drum every time like a hip hop producer finds that one on some you know uh OV right song yeah. and pulls it out and uses it over and over yeah it's crazy it's i totally i definitely felt that tension growing up like my dad was not into hip hop anything that's like a loop He's like definitely bored by the second loop. <laughs> was he full on against it? Like, was he was he like, why are they swearing? Yes, you remember when like the Dog Pound or you know Snoop and Dre came out on the West Coast it was like the biggest thing ever, caused a big stir in the political community. I went to a really hippie small school where they were like had parents meetings about like we shouldn't let our kids listen to this type of stuff, and then my dad grew up fairly like christian values and like the first time he found like my stash of (laughs) you know hardcore hip-hop stuff he literally like threw it away so he was not into it at all i remember 
sitting my dad down when I was 16 or whatever and playing him back to front, uh, me and Jesus the Pimp by the coup. He was not skeptical necessarily of hip hop, but I just wanted to, to convey him what it meant to me. And I wonder if there was anything that you ever tried to sit your dad down <laughs> like in a chair and be like, you're going to listen to this whole song, Dad, and you're going to give it a fair shot. I don't know if I did that with the whole record. The The problem is the swearing. He's so, it's just like, the, the, with him, there's too many things that like, even if he would dig the music, he would like, it would be over as soon as the, the language is vulgar for more than like a few minutes. I'm more probably played him individual tracks that I thought he would like sonically. But I, I, honestly, I don't think I ever played him a hip-hop song where he was like, actually, this is pretty great. Although, you know what's a good one? Even though there's some swearing in it, is the that Arrested Development, uh, Everyday People. Uh, My mom loved that one. That one comes on during like Thanksgiving and stuff because that's just kind of like an undeniable... You know. I was resting at the park, minding my own <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> businesses. I picked up the trouble tone. Yep. <laughs> That's a great one. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I think I just um, embarrassed myself permanently forever <laughs> by demonstrating that I know the lyrics yeah. to the verses of Everyday People by Arrested <laughs> Development. I song. also owned the second Arrested Development album, Kevin. <laughs> Put that on NPR. Zingala Maduni. I owned it. <laughs> owned it. Listen to it. I want to play a song that your dad cut that you got guest vocals credit on okay when you were this is 1982 so <laughs> you definitely couldn't talk yeah <laughs> funny i i guess the story with that is, is my mom and my dad's manager are doing singing the, the laws in the background and they're one of them is holding me <laughs> so i'm in the room <laughs> i don't know if i was actually doing the laws though <laughs> that's the sweetest thing in the world <laughs> also what i like about it no swearing yeah definitely so, no swearing that's good <laughs> We'll finish up with Taylor McFerrin after a quick break. Stick around. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. In 1980, with a few thousand dollars and used dairy equipment, Ken Grossman founded Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Ken's award-winning ales propelled him from home brewer to craft brewer. Today, Ken and his family still own 100% of the company one of the most successful independent craft breweries in America. More at sierranevada.com. Emmy, Grammy, Tony, and Oscar winner John Legend has a saying. Luck is just opportunity meeting preparation. By the time I was in that room with Lauren Hill, I was ready for her to hear me. 
by the time I was in that room with Kanye, I was ready for him to hear me. John Legend on the secret to his continued success. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Hi, I'm the JV Club podcast, Janet Varney, and I used to suffer from indecision. I couldn't choose between Star Wars and Star Trek, whether to call or text, or the best way to cook my eggs. But now, thanks to my weekly dose of We Got This on Maximum Fun, my decisions are made for me. Thanks, Mark and Hal. Warning, We Got This may cause shouting, phone throwing, the illusion that the hosts can hear you, laughter on public transit, and death. We Got This with Mark and Hal. We know what's best. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Taylor McFerrin. He is a singer, songwriter, and DJ. He's also the son of the singer Bobby McFerrin. His new album is called Love's Last Chance. When you were a teenager and a young adult, were you making beats on a hardware machine? Were you Did you have like a MPC sampler or something like that? Or were you doing it in software? I had a really weird experience because I never... See, if I could go back in time, although, I mean, I guess it's all for the best, but I totally got, I would always just believe magazines of what new stuff was coming out that is actually as dope as what it was saying. And same when I go to Guitar Center, they'd totally, like, sell me, like, this is the one. When really, like, I always, I should have got an MPC, because the the first real beat machine I got was a, or, like, what I thought was a SP-808. Actually, that's not true. I got an SP-202. Which it went on to like become the 404, which like Madlib made all of uh, the Mad Villain album on. You know, it's like actually a great beat machine. But the SP 808 was really meant to be like a performance sampler where it had a lot of sample time, but it only had four tracks that you could loop, and the sequencer was trash. Like if you tried to actually run four samples all together with anything more than like. A, a bar loop if it was meant to be like kicks and snares it would like freeze and stutter and all that stuff where the mpc was like the, the ultimate sequencer all the earlier drum machines were a little bit before my time but i never really learned how to like make beats like quote unquote the right way so i ended up always getting these keyboard workstations my dad got a new keyboard at some point and he gave me a roland xp 80 which was like actually a really amazing keyboard for the time but um, and then eventually in high school I had a Korg, Triton, but they all had trash sequencers. It was like not, and they didn't. The Triton had had a sample. What is a sequencer for folks who don't know? It's where, you know, you have a bank of sounds. The MPC is famous because you can you take a record, you play stuff, and it you sample off the record, and like you you can edit, you can find a little drum loop but then like chop the kick and have that be on one track have the hi-hat be on another and then you've probably seen you know for people listening like they have the little pads and you play it with your fingers but you can record it in a way where whatever you play it records it and it plays it back but a sequencer you can um you know set the time of a loop you can quantize the sounds which means it's going to be fit perfectly on a grid in a mathematical sequence or it could have a human feel but the reason the MPC was legendary is it had like a rock solid sequencer, like it would never hiccup. It could have had a really good feel for the quantization and everything. And also there's a sound quality element that goes into all these samplers as well. Like the MPC was a 16-bit sampler, which still had a little bit of grit 
a little bit of lo-fi to whatever you put in it wasn't going to be as pristine as what you put into it in like the uh sp 1200 before it i think it was a 12-bit sampler so when you hear beats from that era they sound even more lo-fi that was like the pete rock era he was famous for that yeah there's there's so many things that go like the mpc is like has the aesthetic that was like the perfect balance where like it's still all those records made on that still sound super modern but they like hit you in the chest it sounds great so the stuff i was using my dad my dad gave me his keyboard i couldn't sample on it it had all these drum like preloaded drum sounds in it which you couldn't make sound hardcore or like <laughs> have a real vibe to it so all my like beats in high school sounded super Just everything you make sounds like a david sanborn album You're right like, what's wrong here <laughs> the only thing i got out of it was that i got really good at playing drums on keyboards and to this day i'm trash trying to play drums on pads but i've like I just did a show with Robert Glasper and Derek Hodge where I literally just was the drummer on key drums. <laughs> and like we listen back and it's like, sounds legit. In a way, it helped me that I didn't have an MPC because I probably would have got so into sampling. And instead, because I was working off key stations, keyboard workstations, I started enjoying actually writing songs and like learning how to play chords and scales and all this stuff, which ended up being more valuable. And the SP-808 even though it was horrible as a sequencer, was amazing as a live performance tool. This one weekend I was able to go to a studio and they had all these vintage synths. I just like played, I sampled myself playing all these synth sounds and I used those sounds live in all these bands for years. Where it was like, I have this crazy weird arpeggio that like fits over this one song. I had like eight zip disks for, full of just random samples that like served my live music career for probably 10 years. So it all worked out. But I always feel like no one ever explained to me that I should have got an MPC from day one. And maybe I would have <laughs> been producing for like Atmosphere in Minnesota when I lived there, you know. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. My guest is musician Taylor McFerrin. When you became an adult, you played with bands for a long time. During that time, were you thinking about who you would be if you were performing as yourself and not performing with a band? No, everything in my career has happened really kind of naturally as the progression. I really needed to be in every band I was in to like, I definitely gained some sort of perspective or production technique or just knowledge of music by for my bandmates that would play me all this new stuff. Like I needed every single experience to be able to get to a point where I could do anything solo. There was an era in New York where I was in a bunch of bands at once and they all kind of dissolved really naturally in like a six month period. So then that was just like the seas parting for me to like finally just do my own thing. But I had all the tools I needed because normally in those bands, I was also the one recording the band and like mixing all our stuff. So I also knew how to just like do the finished product all on my own. It was kind of like right when the bedroom producer era was really picking up steam so it just i didn't really have to think about it too much it kind of all my other projects just fell apart and i was like well here we go <laughs> did you have goals for your music when you became an adult i mean like i imagine after you know you hit your mid-20s you're like well i guess my music career isn't going to lead to me being a famous pop star mm -hmm. so did you have ideas of what you wanted to be? I always thought what I was doing was just kind of 
cool, you know. The the barometer for me was more there was always like the generation ahead that I really respected and the biggest thing for me was to start to be a part of that like club of people that I was like at their shows and then they start knowing my stuff and then we start collaborating. Then you just feel like you're a part of the musical moment of that time. And when you live in New York, that's like a really powerful thing, you know, because it's like this, you play the smallest, crappiest clubs. All of a sudden you play a slightly bigger club that you saw this artist you love like a year earlier. And you're like, I can't believe we're playing here. And then five years later, you look back and be like, I can't believe I was like even excited to play that club. But just that progression is really fun. And now I think most of the artists that I've loved over the years, they just made exactly what they wanted to hear. And um, that music usually stands the test of time better anyways. So I, in a way, I feel lucky that I never got sucked into a project that seemed like it was going to make me a lot of money or make me super famous that was totally trash, you know? Because since I stuck with it and I've always done what I enjoyed, I finally, I got to a point where I can sustain my lifestyle doing what I like to do. You always want to be more and more, you know, it's not like I don't want to be more and more successful and make more money just so I can like travel and do vacations and stuff. But you can, you can get sucked into some weird roads. And I've seen a lot of my friends that like they get a record deal and a record doesn't even come out or they move to LA because it's these producers convince them they're going to like blow them up. And then it's just like, they don't actually have any sort of vibe in the studio and the music's just not good. So even in some older producer that probably had some hit like in the late eighties, early nineties. So they have some clout. There's all these, you know, people to believe <laughs> all the time that can just like kind of lead you astray. So I don't know. I, I remember when I wasn't famous by the time I was 20, I was like, I'm never going to be famous. Yo. <laughs> I cared more about it at that time. But, uh, that was when I first moved to New York. And um, and that was despite the example of uh, having a dad who the thing that getting famous was like his least favorite part of his whole career. Yeah. It was. I, he, I think he finally, as he got older, learned to like appreciate all the amazing stuff it brought to his family and his life. You know, it was more that he was such a ser he took his craft so seriously. And, you know, he was got to that point where he was on stage and cutting records with Herbie Hancock and like all of the top dudes in the world. And there's a feeling of just having that respect and just being one of the guys that I think having a pop hit that was not his intention kind of robbed him of just that feeling of like, I'm cool. <laughs> or it, half about being cool and half about just like, you know, it takes a lot of effort to get to the point when you're like really great on a level where you get to play with cats like that and they think you're great as well. So I totally get why it bugged them out. Did you ever feel self-conscious playing with guys who had, like you went to the new school, right? Yeah. And you went to the new school as a liberal arts student. Yep. There are these dudes who went and women who went to the new school's jazz program, which is very famous. Yeah who have extraordinary abilities, extraordinary virtuosity on their instruments. Yeah. And, you know, are, have been groomed to become whatever the vanguard of the next generation of jazz or whatever, right? Yeah. And I wonder if you ever felt self-conscious as a non-virtuosic performer 
stepping into, especially specifically jazz context. Because like you go play a show with Robert Glasper or something. That dude's one of the big names in jazz. Mm -hmm. Capital J Jazz. Yeah. And he's super good at it. <laughs> and you're like, well, I know some really cool synthesizer patches. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think about it that well. Yes. The did you? When I mean, the, the question is retrospective. Like, did you? I mean, feel I, I, I still do. Um, I, at sometimes, but it's like I feel like I'm. I'm most of the cats, especially in the newer generation that are playing jazz, they all grew up listening to these same records as we did. Just like they were all listening to Snoop and, and Tribe and Jay Dilla and all the Soulquarian stuff. Um, so I feel like my role in those type of groups is to bring an element of like that album experience to a live show. Because a lot of times it's these like in between sounds and uh, atmospheric things that are happening on a record that make it have like a, a slightly more depth to the sonic experience. So I enjoy knowing that I'm adding that to like when I play with Glasper, like that's basically my role in the band is like I know when to sit out, I know when they're like going off on some epic journey that I can't like, I can't. I can't even keep up with like all the changes and like what's happening. Like I understand it as a listener. I'm like, I know what they're doing, but I don't have the chops to be like that instant, like, Oh, here we go. There, there, there. And now I'm doing my solo. But I also know that in, in a studio setting, I can do lots of crazy chords. It's kind of like, I understand a lot about theory and feel, um, enough to sit down and, and make crazy stuff in the studio. But I've put in my hours to get, be comfortable in that setting so i'm not going to beat myself up for not being able to match someone that put their time into like being able to take a crazy solo and hear exactly what's happening in real time and adjusting it's like i i'm working on that maybe in like 20 years i'll be like an epic piano player and just do straight solo piano shows you know <laughs> if i try to if i just put aside production and just focus on that i feel like i could be a really good piano player but I always have the deepest experiences with music listening to albums, and I really care about textures and, and sounds and sonic qualities. So if that's what I'm going to bring to a, a jazz gig, even if it's just like some weird outro when we settle into like a groove, um, I'm totally cool with that. You spent nearly 20 years as a, maybe a little more than 20 years as a, as a beat maker and producer and keyboard player and beatboxer before you made this record. Mm -hmm. And on this record, you are all of those things, but you're also the primary singer. Were you scared to start singing as a singer when you had 15 or 20 years of skill at all the other things that you did? <laughs> Dude, it's like, it helped me back really. Um, I gave up on trying to do it about three years ago. Like the initial plan was to sing on this record when I started making it. And then like a few years and I was like, it gets really frustrating because I'm around so many amazing musicians and singers where it's like hard not to compare yourself. And it's like, it took me so long to get to the point where I'm like, I'm down to play my beats to anybody. So why am I 
put on top of those beats like something that I have <laughs> you know that I've, I've tried to sing at different times but I just never felt like I found my voice or like my approach or any of that, that stuff and really all the vocals on this record were done probably eight months before it was finished it, it felt like I just barely found this way that it sounded like me it sounded not super developed or anything but it sounded at least honest and um, I just made a decision that I was like if I'm going to make kind of the album I envisioned, I'm like, I don't think I can make it on this record, but I'm never going to make it if I don't put myself out there. And I just tried to look at it as, in when I first started making beats, the first few years, I never wanted to play anything for people. And then at a certain point, you start like being like, yo, check this out, you know, to your close friends. And then you find this weird comfort zone when you're finally wanting, wanting to play stuff. And I I realized that I just I was just at that stage with singing where it's like that first all these songs are like my first like I guess I don't hate this <laughs> I guess I'm down to play this phase or the main thing I gained from producing for so long is like I I still remember what that feels like to be super insecure and shy but also enjoy something in a way where you're like but I can see where I'm gonna go with this. Um, so this record is really strange for me because it's like early riser felt like a a lifetime of development and presenting something that felt like kind of not a finished product but like a mature presentation of where i was at and this record's like the totally opposite energy of, of an experience for me where i'm like i like all these tunes but it's not like i toured these songs for like a year or two and like figured out how i really even wanted to sing them this album is like, all right, I think <laughs> this album is me in the studio literally recording the first times where I f felt like I liked it, but I still didn't even have the years or experience to like have any perspective on it, to be like, this is me on a good day. This is like me using this technique. This is like, I can hear the difference with this mic. There's like so many elements that are really early in the, in the development of me as a singer. So... And even now, like, I've probably done, like, 12 to 13 shows with this material. And in my brain, I'm like, I could perform these songs all probably a lot better now even. Um, but moving forward, I realize what I did with this record that I, I'm probably going to change on the new one is that I basically, like, produced this album around my singing in terms of, like, I chose tracks that I thought my voice would sound the best over. And then... I think the difference between this album and Early Riser was I had a total freedom of like any style because I wasn't thinking I'd sing over it. And so I think the next album I'm going to like be as wild as I want to be production wise and force myself to grow as a singer to like match the production a little bit more and be more experimental with like effects and like weird stuff. It's probably the most important thing I've done for myself, but it's it's been an interesting experience sharing with people because it's almost like... I don't even I don't know what this music even sounds like is how it feels <laughs> to me. Um, so it's been an interesting experience, but it's it's like been really important for me. Well, Taylor McFerrin, I'm so grateful to you for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was really nice to get to talk to you and to, I guess, see you after 34 years. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that's uh, you blew my mind with that to start this <laughs> off. Change the whole vibe. I was saving it up, Taylor, <laughs> saving it up. Taylor McFerrin. Love's Last Chance is his new album. It's great. His 2014 record, Early Riser, is beautiful. 
Go give both a listen. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye produced at MaximumFun.org headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where there are tire tracks in the grass, a long, straight, muddy line across the park. And uh, Kevin, my producer, saw a squirrel run down the tire track like it was a squirrel highway. He has written in my script, Life in the Fast Lane. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He has perhaps too much power on the program. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Thanks to Dan for sharing it with us. He's made a bunch of music that he made for uh, Bullseye available on Bandcamp. Uh, Just search for DJW there. Uh, It's called like music for Bullseye. It's pay what you want. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to them and Memphis Industries, their label, for letting us use it. Great song, great band. And before you go, Bullseye has been around forever and a day. I am bald now and didn't used to be. That means we have done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews, including more than one with Linda Barry, who just won a MacArthur Fellowship, a genius grant, and I agree, she is a genius. Two of my favorite bullseye interviews in the history of the program. So go listen to Linda because she is an amazing human being. All our interviews are available on our website or in your favorite podcast app. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Both of the interviews from this week's program are in YouTube if you want to share them. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You can keep up with the show on any of those platforms. We're also these days on NPR.org. You can go find them at NPR.org if you want to. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.